Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 178, The World Shakes. First, thank you to a couple of new patrons, Joseph Fullman, Alexander Stankowski, and Vertex, as well as a big thank you to Joshua Brett for increasing his pledge. So thanks to all of you, you make this happen. And check out, well, you know, keep in touch for the next episode because Alexander Stankowski is going to have some uh, interesting thoughts that I'll be sharing. So he's going to be coming up soon. Also, quick note, Anyone in London want to grab dinner or a drink on March 18th? I'll be in London for a couple days, and it's always nice to kind of see podcast fans when I'm around. So get in touch with me via the Facebook or website. So let's get into it. Last time, the Linden Uprising came to its bloody conclusion, significantly weakening the Bulgarian cause in Macedonia as both Greece and Serbia stepped up basically their own influence and kind of violence campaigns in the territory. In Sofia, a new liberal government took power with an overwhelming majority, though still run by Ferdinand's hand-picked candidate instead of, well, their own party leader. They now face a difficult moment of mass refugees, economic uncertainty, and diplomatic isolation. Now, I want to briefly mention another effect of the failed uprisings. In the wake of these events, the MRO more or less kind of broke into two major factions— a left-wing faction, rose up in the districts of Ceres and Strumica, closer to the Bulgarian border. This group opposed Bulgarian nationalism and wanted to establish a Balkan federation based on more socialist principles in which all ethnicities and religions would be equal. By contrast, the right-wing faction developed more around Skopje, Monastir, and Thessaloniki and was more pro-Bulgarian. With the disbanding of the supremacists, many of their members also joined this faction, which grew in strength as Greece and Serbia again stepped up their efforts to influence the region, angering and frustrating many locals, while turning them away from the more you know left-wing federation idea because that obviously would be more inclusive of Greeks and Serbs, and if those people are pissing you off, then you maybe don't want to be so much inclusive of them. So that's kind of how all that is playing together. But... For now, this is still an informal split, and the organization in general is still reeling from the aftermath of the uprisings, and in the next episode, I'll kind of talk about a bunch of congresses they hold to try to bring things back together and decide how to move forward. But as violence is dying down in Macedonia, the effects of those uprisings are still reverberating strongly in Bulgaria proper. On November the 4th, 1903 at 9 a.m., two men knocked on the door of former finance minister, industrialist, and philanthropist Ivan Geshov. They stated that they were teachers from Tetevin, a small town in central Bulgaria. Now, Geshov had once served as the deputy for Tetevin in the National Assembly, and so he happily invited the men inside. Once inside, however, the two quickly pulled out some revolvers and pointed them at the 54-year-old man. They demanded 100,000 leva for the supremacists, or they said they would blow up his home. Now, obviously, Gesho didn't have that kind of cash laying around, so instead he gave them two promissory notes for 50,000 leva each, and they left. Trouble was, the supremacists had no idea who these two were. And, well, 
It turns out that these two had long since figured out that in a society where extortion on behalf of the various Macedonian revolutionary organizations was a pretty regular occurrence, it was therefore pretty easy to just start, you know, freelancing it for yourself and claiming to be doing it on behalf of the Macedonian cause. But I think this time they maybe messed with the wrong guy, as Geshev was pretty well connected, and they were quickly arrested. But in general, Geshev was by now receiving regular threatening letters on behalf of the various Macedonian organizations, and many fake ones apparently. And well, I said it before, but this is just another example of the kind of harm it does to a society where things like extortion become a kind of regular part of life and where the authorities don't tend to prosecute them because the authorities in this case don't want to upset the Macedonian revolutionary organization, so they kind of are a little hands-off about this. But again, lawlessness can be really pernicious and can really kind of infect a society, and this is, I think, an interesting micro-example of how that kind of plays out in reality. But now back to that new liberal government. As mentioned, Stambulov's old political party now had its commanding majority, though this was in part achieved through the usual threats and violence against opponents. Now, in her biography of Ivan Geshev, Statelova notes how the party solidified its grip on power at this moment, writing, quote, Opposition speakers in the National Assembly were constantly interrupted and insulted, not given a chance to express their views. At Petkov's suggestion, the assembly did away with the rules of order that had been adopted in 1901 and restored those of the seventh regular National Assembly. Instead of improving parliamentary life, was becoming more Balkan. End quote. In other words, well, she goes on to note that Geshev was lamenting its kind of lack of tolerance, temperance, and general debate in the National Assembly, and it seems that's what Stumbleoff's uh, old liberals coming back to power is doing. It's, it's harming that even more, and it's becoming more difficult for the National Assembly to be an actual place where people discuss ideas, and it's becoming just sort of a, a forum for name-calling and the raw exercise of political power. But if civility in the new National Assembly was lacking, Activity was not. Just as the Inlinden uprising was ending in November, they had already voted to grant half a million leva to victims of the revolt. They will now give an additional 300,000 leva less than two months later. And a month after that, a new federation of charitable societies was founded to further help the refugees coming out of Macedonia. So they did, you know, I guess having a commanding majority makes it a lot easier to have a kind of rapid response to a crisis like this. And frankly, they did quite a lot. So, you know, commendable for that. Otherwise, finishing up the year, throughout 1903, the first four telephone stations opened in Bulgaria and in bigger news, so did the port of Burgas. Now, this port had been under construction for 12 years and cost about 7 million leva, but its effects will be profound. Today, we kind of take it for granted that Burgas is one of the two major port cities on the Bulgarian Black Sea coast. But actually, prior to that port opening, very few ships stopped there. This combined with the connection of Burgas to the main Bulgarian rail network has, well, now is kind of in the process of rapidly turning it from a pretty sleepy seaside town into a major economic hub, handling hundreds of thousands of tons of shipping. So yeah, it's easy to kind of overlook just a port opening, but this port is, you know, along with the railroad, are really what turns Burgas into the city it is today. And that starts in 1903. Now, coming out of the year, January of 1904 was a very busy time for the, as we already know, busy 13th National Assembly. 
Throughout the month, they passed laws protecting senior government officials, shocking, I know, by stating that a minister can't be sued for any actions they take which are approved by the National Assembly, which seems fair, but still, you know, classic. The government is very concerned with protecting members of the government. They also granted amnesty for political prisoners arrested between 1897 and 1903 and created new protections for Ferdinand and his family against journalists. So made it harder for someone to write disparaging things about the royal family. So pretty much mostly focused with protecting, uh, protecting the core, protecting themselves. So besides aiding the victims of the recent uprisings, the first major actions of this new government are to protect members of the government and Prince Ferdinand himself. Though, to be fair, they also made Sofia University officially a university. So, Bulgaria now has the first kind of, let's say, proper university in its history. I mean, we know that, you know, in the time of Simeon and things, there were major educational institutions in Bulgaria. But, you know, if we think of a, what we think of now as a university, Bulgaria has its very first one. So that's exciting. But while the National Assembly was focused on all these internal matters, big things were happening abroad. In particular... A little island you may have heard of called Japan declared war on another place you may have heard of called Russia. Now, I mentioned a few times how Russia has been very preoccupied in Central Asia and the Far East, and this is in part why Russia has been so adamant about enforcing the status quo in the Balkans, as well as fostering better relationships with Austria-Hungary. And well, this is that. This is, you know, they've been building themselves up, trying to establish a stronger presence in East Asia, and Japan has, you know, you could say they noticed. Still, at this moment, few in Russia believe that Japan could stand up to their military, but an initial surprise attack on Russian ships in Port Arthur immediately bottled up the Russian fleet there, and within months, the Japanese army had laid siege to the city. Russia now found itself fighting to maintain a far eastern warm water point that port rather that they had wanted desperately for decades. And well, I won't cover a lot of details about the conflict, though I will talk about it more later, but so I won't cover this conflict in a lot of detail, but and though I will discuss it more in the future, but you can imagine it's going to have huge consequences, including for Bulgaria, because, well, the buildup to this conflict has already had pretty major consequences for Bulgaria, because it's in part, again, why Bulgaria has been told time and time again to just not change anything, keep the status quo in the Balkans, you know, sit down, shut up, don't uh, bother us, the adults are talking. You know, that kind of approach towards the Balkans has been driven in part by Russia's Far Eastern policies. But... With all the global powers keeping their eyes on Russia and Japan, many were still trying to consider what the future of the Macedonian question might be in light of the failure of the Linden Uprising. In February, MRO members based in the Odrin Revolutionary District, modern Adrianople in Turkey, so the bit that's far away from Macedonia, met to start doing just that. In their meeting, they concluded that the organization needed to be more participatory and more democratic. So, while the MRO was breaking into two factions over Macedonia, it was also trying to reform itself in its eastern branches. This also shows that despite now being a banned organization, the MRO was still able to hold a meeting in Varna. So, you know, the Bulgarian government still not strongly enforcing that ban, let's say. Now, over in London, the Balkan Committee was also meeting to discuss the future of the Macedonian question. Remember, the Balkan Committee is a kind of informal group of uh, British uh, politicians concerned with Balkan issues. We talked about it before. And, well, 
This meeting actually attracted an impressive 500 attendees, including 40 members of parliament, and showed the extent to which the Bulgarian cause attracted some real attention by the UK government. And around this time, a phrase was going around about how Macedonia should be made into a European Lebanon. Now, for those of you totally baffled by that expression, Lebanon is, even today, a very religiously diverse country. At this moment, it's still a part of the Ottoman Empire. But the goal was to find a way to get a European Christian to govern Macedonia in such a way that a fair multi-ethnic and multi-religious government could be established, which was you know, kind of also what was attempted to be done in Lebanon, but that's a very long story involving some civil wars. But, you know, this is kind of the, the vision for Macedonia, to make it a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, kind of pluralistic society or state. But we could say there's certainly a lot of sympathy for Bulgaria at this time, uh, despite the fact that, you know, that seems to be the, the main line of thinking for Macedonia, not for it to kind of join Bulgaria. But we know a bit about the sentiment because Ivan Geshop visits London two years from now, and he's given a history of the Macedonian question prepared for the British Minister of Foreign Affairs. And in that history, it states that the policy of the great powers towards Macedonia was, quote, neither consistent nor humane, end quote. And, quote again, had planted the seed of today's terrible harvest of bloodshed and devastating unrest, end quote. It went on to state that, quote, Bulgaria cannot be calm or move forward as long as Macedonia is in upheaval and ruins. Add to all of this the systematic annihilation of the Bulgarian population in Macedonia and Odrin, and you will understand Bulgaria's enormous interest in the quickest and most satisfactory re resolution of the Macedonian question. End quote. So, you know, I think it's a, a shockingly fair and uh, self-critical way to kind of analyze this. I was a little pleasantly surprised to hear that that was written in a kind of historical summary for the British Foreign Secretary. But while that kind of analysis is reassuring to read, because again, it acknowledged the extent to which the current state of affairs in Macedonia is the direct result of the great powers and why Bulgaria can't just kind of deal with it the way the great powers want it to, all this ultimately doesn't add up to very much in practical terms and looking at kind of how Great Britain is adjusting its policy. This is because nearly everyone involved recognizes that the Ottoman Empire will not allow any substantial changes in Macedonia without war. And no one's really willing to go to war with the Ottomans over this. Thus, despite all those sympathetic words, status quo. So, yeah, Bulgaria is still stuck in a situation where changing something in Macedonia could only be done with the kind of close cooperation of the great powers, and that's still very unlikely because Russia and Austria-Hungary remain devoted to enforcing the status quo. So it's nice that there's some real sympathy for Bulgaria in London and in Westminster, but it doesn't mean much for now. And on the ground, that's where the real changes are occurring, though, as days after the Balkan Committee met in London, a Greek cheta entered southwestern Macedonia on an order from Athens to fight the MRO. So, yeah, the Balkan Committee is deliberating things, but people in Macedonia are changing the facts on the ground, basically with violence. So, while the MRO was still able to meet in Varna and was splintering into factions and facing attacks in Macedonia itself, the Bulgarian government was still seeking to reduce tensions with the Ottomans by promising to redouble its efforts to control both the MRO and the supremacists. 
These negotiations have been going on for months as Bulgaria attempted to expand the reforms the Ottomans had agreed to in Macedonia and Odrin as well. Basically, we'll crack down on the Macedonian revolutionary groups if you have more reforms. The same kind of deal that's been on the table for a long time. At the same time, the, you know, I guess still current leader, the supremacists, they're kind of fading, General Tsonchev was actually touring Western Europe and attempting to promote the goals of the supremacists there, even if the organization again was technically banned. Bulgaria was also trying to get Ottoman permission to expand commercial and infrastructure ties with Macedonia. Hint, hint, even today, there's still not a train line between Sofia and Skopje, so, well, I guess, uh, spoiler alert for how that went. Still, Ultimately, an agreement was signed in which Bulgaria promised to crack down on the revolutionary groups and the Ottomans gave amnesty to around 4,000 political prisoners and agreed to take back refugees who had fled the, basically fled Macedonia after the uprisings and were now in Bulgaria. And while a lot of people didn't return, which is why, you know, Sofia has whole neighborhoods made up of, well, kind of founded, you can say, by Macedonian refugees, Still, about 30,000 of those refugees returned, which no doubt took a little bit of pressure off of Sofia in terms of just all the logistics and money necessary to help those refugees. Still, most of Sofia's economic demands were rejected, but Bulgaria could now appoint commercial agents to help facilitate trade in Macedonia. So there's that. But while this agreement certainly lessened tensions, it definitely did not put an end to them. The Ottomans were still resisting the implementation of the reforms that they had agreed to, and in particular, they were helping the Greeks expand their influence in Macedonia. So yeah, things are still tense there. But shortly after this agreement was concluded, Bulgaria also concluded an agreement with Serbia in which both states agreed to cooperate in opposing external influence in Macedonia. Now, the irony, of course, is that the main issue at this moment wasn't really external influence in Macedonia, but the internal struggle within the territory between Greece, Serbia, and Bulgaria. But, you know, sure. Uh, now, it seems Serbia made this move largely because Belgrade was becoming increasingly frustrated with that great power insistence on the status quo in the Balkans, just like Sofia. The recently assassinated King Alexander had pushed the country to become very close with Austria-Hungary, but his replacement... Peter was very different. The new monarch wanted Serbia to expand towards Bosnia and Montenegro, but both directions were blocked by Austria-Hungary. Belgrade would have liked an alliance with Russia against the Austrians, but as we know, Russia was busy fighting Japan and basically wanted things to be calm with the Austrians. So running out of options, King Peter decided that he would kind of brighten up relations a bit with Bulgaria. But while that part of this agreement was secret, publicly the agreement was basically a customs uh, agreement to increase trade between Bulgaria and Serbia. And frankly, this whole treaty between the two didn't really mean much in practice. It was a crucial first step towards a broader Balkan alliance against the Ottomans. You know, hint, hint, spoiler alert. The agreement was also seen as a major move by Austria-Hungary, though. Vienna reacted furiously as, quote, it considered the agreement a disruption of its trading arrangement in the Balkans. The very idea of Balkan states entering into bilateral commercial agreements independent of Austria was preposterous. In response, it imposed a trade embargo on Serbia which lasted for six years and ultimately became known as the Pig War. End quote. That was from Misha Glenny, who also notes that this 
pig war, this embargo actually ultimately helped Serbia break its crippling economic dependence on Austria-Hungary by forcing it to find new markets for its products. And in case you were wondering why it was called the pig war, it's because, as we've talked about in the past, Serbia exported a massive amount of pork to Austria-Hungary. So there you go. Now, shockingly, we can all hear it in my in the way I read that, but this incident again really showed the fundamental lack of respect many of the great powers still had for the Balkan states. It's ironic considering by this point, Serbia has been autonomous from the Ottomans for 75 years and fully independent for 26 And yet, to senior officials in Vienna, the very idea of Serbia exercising an independent foreign policy was absurd. But back to the question of Balkan rivalries in Macedonia. By now, the great powers were beginning to implement the reforms they had forced the Ottomans to agree to a few months ago. And this was already changing things on the ground, but, (laughs) haha, jokes on them, not for the better. While the intention had been to calm the situation by reforming how Macedonia was governed, the result was basically just more violence. R.J. Crampton summarizes how this happened, writing, quote, Because the Austro-Russian reform scheme called for the redrawing of Macedonian administrative boundaries to produce units of greater ethnic homogeneity, the Greek, Bulgarian, and Serbian factions interpreted this as an invitation to use ethnic cleansing to create zones of influence, end quote. So, this is a pattern that should be familiar to anyone who studied 20th century European history. When you make it clear that you intend to draw borders based on ethnic identifications in the future, you strongly incentivize people on the ground to use violence to affect those identifications. In fact, just months later, in September, a Serbian Cheta will attack a town in the Kumanovo region and kill four Bulgarians, marking the first such Serbian attack in Macedonia. Thus, within months, both Serbia and Greece sent Cheti into Macedonia to fight and kill pro-Bulgarian forces there, marking basically the beginning of a new era of violence and competition there. Because, yeah, we've seen a lot of violence in Macedonia, but not really between Greek, Bulgarian, and Serbian factions in this way. So, it's ironic for the residents of Macedonia that Basically, it wasn't just foreign powers and Chetty which were bringing violence to their lands. Early April also saw the strongest recorded earthquake ever to hit the Balkans, basically strike Macedonia. It it uh, The epicenter was in an area just south of Simitli, which is in the portion of Macedonia, which is now part of Bulgaria. So, you know, south of Blagovgrad, if you're familiar with that area. But at this point, this is still part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Interestingly enough, I only happened to hear about this earthquake because of the horrific earthquake which just which just hit uh, Turkey and Syria. And ironically enough, this 1904 earthquake was the same strength, a 7.8 on the Richter scale. As a result, it was actually felt as far away as Budapest. But damage was mostly limited to the total destruction of the village of Krupnik and in- extensive damage in Bansko and Simitli, some damage in Gornajmaya, Razlog, and Pechevo. But... Essentially, the lack of a lot of kind of high-rise buildings meant that at most around 100 people were killed despite the strength of this. So, you know, people are living in small homes and things made of wood. There's only so much damage an earthquake can do relative to hitting a modern city. And in the kind of page connected with this, the kind of blog post connected with this uh, episode, I'll link to an article with a lot of damage, uh, well, photos of the damage, and you can kind of see what it looked like at the time. Anyways, 
Later in the year, that new Bulgarian liberal government obtained a new loan to help fund its enormous new investments in the Bulgarian military. This time, it was from for 100 million leva from France at a 5% interest rate. This was, for reference, about equivalent to the entire Bulgarian government budget for an entire year, so it's a big loan. And it was from that same bank that gave the loans we discussed before that were so controversial that there were all the debates about whether to kind of give up some potential elements of Bulgaria's economic sovereignty. So yeah, it's that same uh, French bank. But while the Stambulovist government was rushing ahead to borrow money and buy military equipment, some, like Ivan Geshev, were very worried about the country's long-term financial health and the lack of transparency about where all this money was going, which, in his eyes, made it understandably difficult to, to kind of determine whether or not these loans were worthwhile. Now, we know by this point that about one-third of Bulgaria's budget was going to the military, and that the army was buying vast quantities of modern weapons from Germany and France. Even the navy was getting some attention as Bulgaria purchased a cruiser and six torpedo boats from France. In other words, for now, Bulgaria was getting most of its weapons actually from France, while its erstwhile enemy, the Ottomans, were getting most of their weapons from Germany. So, kind of how the geopolitics are playing out for that now. But not all the money was going to the military, as Sofia was getting extensive investments at this time. New wider streets were being built, old wooden neighborhoods were being demolished, and all manner of public and private buildings were being constructed. In fact, it was only around this time that Sofia actually became Bulgaria's main economic center, replacing Ruse. So, basically, Sofia had only been the capital for 25 years, and, well, you can imagine that the city must have been unrecognizable by this point to those who remembered that sleepy wooden town of, I think it was like 20,000 inhabitants before it became the capital. So, Sofia is really transforming and it's finally become not just a political, but the economic center of Bulgaria. Now, in November, Ivan Geshov also got some good news as the court in Bucharest finally recognized that Evlogi Gergeyev's will was legal and that Geshov's inheritance was therefore also legal. Remember, it was a big scandal that he was by far the main kind of recipient of uh, Gergeyev's vast fortune. So, yeah, the legal challenges in Romania were now resolved. Except that within a few months, his opponents filed a basically identical claim, but in Bulgaria. So, just start that whole process over again. Statelovo writes in her biography of Geshev that this was likely about more than just the inheritance, but was a tool for Geshev's political opponents to attack him. His criticism of the Stambulovist government's reckless borrowing and spending seems to have not gone over too well. But time will tell whether this legal case will be any more effective or have a different outcome than the one in Romania did. Otherwise, 1904 saw some cultural milestones, including the first puppet show in Bulgaria. I imagine there must have been some in the Middle Ages and things, but the first kind of full-scale modern puppet show. Uh, the first ever recording of traditional Bulgarian music was pressed on a vinyl record, and the National Theater was completed in Central Sofia. Today, we know it as the Ivan Vazov National Theater, and it remains one of the main locations of theater performance in Sofia to this day. And, well, basically it's one of the kind of landmarks of the city. Now, it was built by the Vienna-based architectural firm Thelner & Helmer, which built similar buildings, mostly theaters and opera houses, throughout Central and Eastern Europe at this time. Personally, I think it's pretty fascinating because it's a kind of cool thread that connects the region. 
And if you like go to the Wikipedia page about Fellner and Helmer, if you travel around this region, I guarantee you, you have seen so many of their buildings. From Zurich to Odessa, Zagreb to Hamburg, you can find similar looking theaters built by this firm. And so it's kind of just this interesting architectural web that connects this whole wider Central and Eastern European region together. And Sofia has its own little node on that web. And with that, we'll mark the end of 1904 and the end of this episode. The supremacists have more or less disbanded and their members are now kind of shifting to new MRO factions while their former leader tours Europe to gather support. The MRO itself is breaking into yet smaller factions while still holding some meetings when possible and trying to decide how to move forward after the failure of the Linden uprisings. Bulgarian political life seems to be getting more violent and brutal by the day, as demonstrated by the variety of attacks coming at Ivan Geshov, as well as the violence which kind of elected this huge government into power. Bulgaria concluded new agreements with Serbia and the Ottomans, but neither seems that likely to prevent continued violence in Macedonia, as Greek and Serbian Cheti have now begun to kill in their attempts to suppress pro-Bulgarian activities there. 1904 overall was a year when the world shook. It shook as the Russian Empire went to war with Japan, a conflict that will soon, soon genuinely kind of shock the world, and it shook as Macedonia was hit by an astonishingly large earthquake. Next time, we'll see yet more violence, riots, battles, and chaos as Bulgaria continues to fight for its place in this rapidly evolving world. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com and... Yeah, go there, check it out. You can get a lot more details about every single episode and all the stuff that happened. And I'll see you in the next one.